Usually when that question is asked, the three extra words added to it at the end. Because when the person asks it, they're either trying to be sarcastic or trying to be funny or pass it off as a joke. And they will add these three words. Do you have an enemy, real or imagined? When we think about it for a moment, we have to realize and ask ourselves, though after that question, if we do have an enemy, what have we done to pursue to find out why that individual is an enemy or have declared themselves to be an enemy of us? In other words, what have we done to get to the root cause? Sit down with that individual, talk to them for a few minutes, at least trying to find out the reason why they have declared to all and to you, you are my enemy. And hopefully during that time, as you understand and get to under what happened or the root cause thereof, maybe you can spend the time to be able to explain or to help undo all of this and to turn that enemy into a friend. And therefore they cease to be an enemy and no longer will you have to ask yourself, do I have an enemy? The answer is now, no longer. Because of the fact I have changed an enemy to a friend. But when I ask that question, I ask it with a sense of this. We all do have an enemy. That is a fact. We all have an enemy. No, it's not Satan. I'm not talking about him this morning. So cross him off the list. We're going to talk about someone else that's an enemy. Or something else it is, that is. Simply this. We all have an enemy. And that enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, is simply called the last enemy. And we all know what that is. That last enemy that we all have is simply called death. We are, it is an enemy to us because if you would ask the majority of the street, they don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to mention it all because it is a frightening thing. And we have said before, it is that great unknown. No one has ever come back from it and ever described what it was like on the other side. We never hear, as after Lazarus was resurrected, that he ever had a news conference, if we might say, to explain what he observed on the other side after coming back from death. Nothing's ever said. Therefore, people are afraid of it. They don't want to discuss it. They make jokes of it, trying to pass it off. A lot of people will go any means possible, take every you know, herb or vitamin known to man that hopefully will prolong their life. And their imagination by doing so they might be able to outlive Methuselah many years beyond. But you see, even though God has called death the last enemy, God also has said unto us, even though he is an enemy, through my word, I can show you how to make that enemy a friend. How we can change the status of this old last enemy. This one which every one of us is somewhat afraid of. And God says, I can make him, even though I say he's enemy, I can make him your friend. Why did he send Jesus Christ to this earth? He sent him to bring salvation. But he also brought, uh, brought him to this earth to show us how we could change the status of death from the enemy to a friend. Through Christ, God wanted us to invite us to understand and realize that death is to be looked upon as a friend. A friend who opens a grand door that allows our spirit to live eternally in the bliss of God. So God says unto us, yes, it is an enemy. 
Yes, it separates us from friends and loved ones. Yes, it ceases the activity we did on this earth. But I want you to understand and see it is a real friend. Paul in his lifetime, as he wrote to many congregations throughout the Asia Minor area, reminds us the fact that he understood that very thing. Writing to his brethren at Philippi in 1 Philippians 22 and 23, he simply said, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet I, what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Here this grand old man that we have so much loved through the years says unto all of us, I understand, yes, death is an enemy. But you know what? To me it's a friend because guess what? If I understand, and I understand and realize that my faith is, if I leave this world, I'm going to go and be with Christ. And what did Paul describe that? Which is far better than being here with you. And he would simply say, I love you all. I want to continue preaching this gospel, but it's far better over there than it is here. To me, he simply said, death is a friend. David understood this as well. As he wrote in Psalms 116 and verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Even though it is called an enemy by God, God turned around and says at the same time, it is a blessed thing to find those who have been faithful me all their life who are dying for me. It is a precious thing to behold. For I and thy promises them will usher them from this life on earth to the place beyond all description on the other side of the river of death. So this morning, let's take a few moments and let's look at death from God's viewpoint. Not from ours, but from His. And we begin with the fact is that God sees death as simply what we would call taking or going to sleep. We all know that sleep is precious. All of us will enjoy it. If you don't believe it's, uh, sleep is precious, ask an insomniac or a new, one of the newborn baby if they don't believe sleep is precious. One who is insomnia will go to the doctor and say, I cannot sleep. Doctor begins to examine and try to find the root cause. Why are you not sleeping? Do sleep studies, everything else they can find to help that individual where they can get a night's rest. So the next month when they rise and wake, they're rested, whole and well again, and not still drugged around because no sleep, stress or whatever that's caused it. Once it is found, he said, here's the medication. This will make you sleep. This will help to relax you to the point that you can get that seven, eight hour sleep that you need every night to rest to face the new day. Those who have newborn babes all work, work their family's schedule to make sure that baby has his nap time, whether in the afternoon to make sure that they sleep through the night if all possible. Their parents want to make sure that child gets sleep, but at the same time they're saying to themselves, we want some sleep too. So we'll work very hard, as it were, to get that time to rest. Because we all understand that once that body is rested, we wake up in feeling, feeling great after that night's time. So you see, Jesus looked at that and says, raising the dead is nothing more than waking some of them up from sleep. John 11, that of Lazarus, that famous scene there as it takes place and unfolds. And Jesus arrives at the scene where, as he's making his way toward there to that place, he tells his disciples in John 11, verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps. 
but I go that I may wake him up. Jesus simply says, to me, he's just asleep. And I'm going to simply go and wake him up. So when he goes to the tomb and they roll the stone and say, what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. Simply saying, Lazarus, wake up. Lazarus does that very thing, comes forth. Look at the room in which the daughter of Jairus lay in Mark 5. As Gary Christ says, why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. Two verses later, he simply says, he took her by the hand and simply said to her, arise. She woke up and was alive again and says she began to walk around. Jesus simply said to all of us, death is just asleep. And we realize, understand that on that great judgment day when the, when the great archangel blows the trumpet of God, we're all going to wake up on that day. All the graves tells us we'll hear his voice and we'll rise up to meet him in the air. That day will be waking up day from the tomb of sleep as it were to meet him in the resurrection day. So yes, sleep is an appropriate term. God says it's an enemy, yes. But I want you to look at it from my viewpoint as being nothing more than being asleep. And God says, I know that's what it is because we see through Christ, I have the power to wake you up. But also we look at death from God's perspective as being simply taking a trip. Why do we all take trips? Everyone has their own reason for doing so. Many says we take a trip because we want to get away from work and the stress thereof. We want to get away from the house, all the things to do around the house. We just want to get away for a while, away from all that and just have some fun for a little while. And everyone who says it always has some of their favorite places they always like to go in order to get away, to rest, to relax, to get the stress of life. And they always tend to go to the same places because they're familiar and they love going there. Other people say if we take a trip, we take it because I want to go somewhere new. I want to go in some place in this country I've heard other people talk about or I've seen pictures of it on television and I want to go there and see it for myself in and as we might say, in reality and not on television. I want to be there and to see and to touch and to hold. So yes, we take trips for various reasons. And we take those trips and we pack up, as it were, ready to go on that trip to stay an extended period of time so we can rest and come back home. But notice again what Paul said we looked at at the beginning in Philippians 1. He said, remember, he said, For I am hard pressed between the true, having desired to part and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul says, one day I know I'm taking a trip. And Paul says, right now, I'm already packed and ready to go on this trip. I've been packed for, for weeks and months and years to go on this trip. I'm ready to go. Because he said, when I leave and go on this trip, to go where Christ is going to put me in paradise to the day of judgment is a place far better than here and I'm, I want to go. It's going to be the best trip I've ever took in my life and he is one of the few we might say who visited near the whole known world of that day and time. He says this trip is going to be far better than any of those. Paul realized, said, I know that when I look at myself, I'm going to, my body's resting in the grave but I'm going to be on the other side in my spirit ready to wait the judgment of God on that day when he wakes us all up to meet him in judgment. Someone is simply described, as we call it, taking this death as a trip in this way. 
And it's a very simple illustration, but I think it makes an excellent point and a very simple way in that in the way it's described. You got a, you got a friend of yours that's going to go on a trip on an ocean liner. They're going to take a cruise on an ocean liner. They want you to come down with them that day or take them to the dock so they can get on the boat and take the trip. You go down the dock with them. You make sure they've got all their baggage with them. Did we leave anything? Make sure we got everything. You get them on board. And they're going to stand on the deck and wave back at you, you know, as they all do, as they sail away from the harbor. The boat makes its trip. It moves out of the harbor. And the person on the dock says, I'll stay here till I see it go out of sight. And you see slowly as it goes over the horizon, that boat slowly, little but surely, disappears over the horizon. So you're staying there for a while. The boat's going away. And finally, that's why you hear it simply say, she's gone. I can't see her no more. She has gone completely over the horizon. Ah, but the dock where she's going to land, there's people standing there to pick you up. They begin to look over the horizon, and they begin to see the funnels of the ship. They begin to see it slowly come into view, and all of a sudden they see the hull and say, look, she's coming. She's at the dock. She's now here. When we think about that for a moment, it makes a perfect illustration. If you sit at the feet, at the bed of someone who's dying, and you simply, simply describe to yourself, she's going. As she takes her last breath, when she does, you simply say, she is gone. On the other side, the angel saying, I see her coming. And now she is here. That's the difference. It's a trip of which all of us would want to go on. But the point of it is, are we packed and ready to go on that trip? God also sees it as a change of residence. How many times through the years have you moved? Some would say, well, we, we live in the same house we lived in when we got married. We never moved. Set the furniture around the house. But we've never moved. Others would say, well, we've moved several times through the years. Well, why did you move? Well, some would say, well, we just simply wanted a new house. All these years we've been living in this one, and I've kept saying over and over again, for once before I retire or die, I would love to have a brand new home, and it built the way I want it, and it be put in the, the appliances, everything would be like I want, the kitchen like I want, the bedrooms like I want, the bathrooms like I want. I want a house the way I want. I want a brand new home. That's your reason. Others will look at their house and say, well, huh, we got to move on. Why? Well, we ain't got enough room. So you move to a bigger house. And the bigger house may be because you need more bedrooms, need a larger kitchen, need a family room, a larger backyard. Whatever it may be, but you simply say, we got to have a bigger house. This is not big enough for all of our family. So that's why you move. Others say, we move because my job changed. I had to move somewhere else across the state or move from across the country somewhere else altogether. So we had to move and buy another house because my job changed. Some said, well, you know, the reason why we moved? Because for years I passed by that house and I've always told my wife is, I'm going to own that house one day so we ever come to that I've always wanted it. I don't care what it looks like on the inside. I don't care how much work I have to do. I want that house. I've always admired it. So when it comes up, you buy it. Why? Because you just wanted it. That house has always been the one you've been after. Someone else said, well, I buy, we bought a new house, we bought a house, we sold ours and moved because convenience. We were too far away from work, too far away from family. 
so we move where we be more convenient to the thing that we need. So you see, there's many reasons why we move to a new house. We see we need to see death the same way. Why do we look at death as described as a change of residence? Simply this. We have a good, dear Christian friend whose life is frail. The disease has wrecked its bo- his, their bodies to the point that they're just hardly able to go at all. They know that the day is coming when their frail bodies will no longer serve its purpose. That day comes when they no longer know that body can no longer sustain life, that death is going to come and take it, take it away. They're going to change residences. So they're going to move out of this tent of clay. They're going to give it up. It's going to go back to the dust of the ground from which it came. But they're going to move to another location. A location that sometimes we've seen called that wonderful place called home. They're going to move to that place, that new house. That house that Jesus has talked about. That house whom they have, in their lives as a child of God they have planned for. They're going to move to a new house. And they know they're going because God has said, if you live faith in me, it is yours. It's going to have my name on it. It's going to be my house. God's going to give it to me. In a place that is far beyond all description. Yeah. So we look at God and say, look at death not as an envy. Look at the change of residences. From earth to the other side. Where death says, come home where you belong. But we also, God says to us, don't look at death as an enemy. Look at death as an inheritance. You ever received inheritance? from a friend or a loved one. No doubt when you got that call from the executor of that will that says, so-and-so has passed away. You've been mentioned in their will. They've got something they want to leave you. Because most people are thinking, oh, well, I hope it's money. I could use it. I hope it's some value. I can sell it to make a little money. It always goes through our mind. We wonder what we're going to get. So we arrive to the office of that executor, to the home, and we find exactly what we've been left. Sometimes we're happy that they left us something. Sometimes we're kind of mad because they didn't leave us what we thought we should have gotten. So we're upset about it. But God says unto us, look at death as an inheritance. Peter described in 1 Peter 1 and 4 as an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now when Peter wrote that, and those who listened to it, no doubt Peter had in his mind, no doubt he reflected back to the mountainside in Palestine when he heard the Savior say simply this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Christ said, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Notice here as Christ brings it out. That is Peter's statement in 1 Peter 1 and 4 is a compliment to Matthew chapter 6. There Peter says it is inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away. And Christ says this treasure is laid up in heaven where moth or rust or thieves cannot take. And it is reserved for you 
in heaven. But remember the key. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He writes to his brethren in Colossae in chapter 3 beginning. When he says, Then you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above. For Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here then Paul simply is backing up and is copying again that which Christ said and that which Peter said. That our inheritance is not here on this earth. Christ didn't promise us a beautiful place. He didn't promise us a period of peace and prosperity. He didn't promise us a thousand year reign and we're going to live like we have never lived before. And the abundance would be beyond our imagination. He says, I am giving you an inheritance. It is yours as my child. You live in me and die in me. I'm going to give it to you. But it is in heaven. Not here. Is that incorruptible, undefiled inheritance that we're all given if we live faithful to Him? You see, we can gain if we talk about all the things that we've invested there. Over in that inheritance, part of that inheritance, the promise to us there'll be no more sin, no more Satan, no more doubt and fear. And here it says there'll be no more aches, disease, pains, tears, and death. That's part of that inheritance. That's promised unto us when we die. This will be what's on the other side. There'll be none of those things. And then we gain the fellowship with the Godhead and with those saints we've known through the years who have gone on there before us. Would you consider the loss to be moved from a decaying shack to a gold palace? Would you think that being an insult? Or would you gladly take it? You see, this is that old shack that's falling apart. Over yonder lies the house of gold. Would you think it a crime? If someone says, I'll take those rags off and I'll give you a whole brand new suit of clothes, would you turn them down? No. Here we wear the rags of this old earth. Other, on the other side, it's the pure white robes. It's been promised unto us. That's the inheritance. The world says to us, when you die, you lose it all. Because you can't take it with you. Mm-mm. This tells me, yeah, I'll lose what I had here. But over yonder, there's more to gain than this world ever has to offer me. And that we cannot give up. Have you feared, do you fear death? Only each individual can answer that for themselves. I can't answer it for you. You can't answer it for me. But are you afraid of death? We need to get, you need to get rid of that, as we say, now while you have the time and opportunity. One of the things that Christ did when he came to this earth was to remove the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews makes that very plain to us in the second chapter, beginning with verse 14 when he says, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself lies shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and release those who through their fear, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Here the Hebrew writer makes it plain, doesn't he? See, Christ came to remove the fear of death, to turn it into a friend. What happens to an individual when they become a child of God and live for God all their lives? When they look at death, what are they able to say? Because Christ removed the fear of death from them, then what are they able to say? Nobody can ever say it better than David. When he simply says, Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. They can say that because the fear of death is gone because of what Christ did for them on Calvary when he shed his precious blood. As a Christian this morning, are you afraid of death? If you are, why are you? Is it because you know if you died right now, you'd never make it? And you are a child of God. Again, only you know the answer to that question. But if you are a child of God, you are afraid of death. You know what you need to do. You know what you need to ask the Savior, to, the God of heaven, to do for you. And that ask for his forgiveness of that, what you have done that's caused you to be afraid of death. And you're a child of God. The invitation is ready. God has not brought the world to an end. Here's your opportunity. This morning, if you're not a child of God, this is the day. Here's the hour, the time. Don't put it off till tomorrow, as this old song's about to say. Today, you can remove the fear of death in your life. You can become a child of God and make death is no longer an enemy. But today, death will become a friend. Think of that while together we stand, while we sing.